we get a chance to work with really, really good organisations and universities and to be able to put our old practices and, and knowledge with modern day science, I think that's really important because a lot of the stuff we understand, and I'm pretty sure it's because blackfellas back in the day were scientists, just never had the label. Since uh, colonial settlement, vast tracts of our country have been ruined by poor farming practices, destroyed by uh, the damming of rivers and the draining of uh, underwater tables, not to mention the introduction of uh, feral flora and fauna. Well, you know the story. And for many years, our First Nations people have been pushing back with the outrageous idea that they might have a clue about how to set things right. Now they're marking uh, 25 years since the declaration of the first Indigenous protected area and how the Indigenous Ranger Program has been, well, not only transforming the land, but also the lives of people who work on it. And uh, we began the program with an excerpt from the film Indigenous Protected Areas, Keeping Country Strong, which has been made to, uh, to showcase what happens on the land when it's cared for by traditional owners. My next guests have been involved with the campaign from the early days and uh, one of them has just come back from Paris with the UNESCO Award for his community's work. My old friend Dennis Rose is a good tomato man and a traditional owner from Bujbim in uh, Western Victoria. That's where my wife Patrice came from. He's also the chair of the not-for-profit organisation Country Needs People. And Paddy O'Leary is its CEO. And I welcome them both and thank them for travelling to Gadigal country to uh, share their stories with me. Dennis, if you could start by telling me about your award. Yes, we uh, won the Melina Mercury Award uh, for uh, good management or best management of a, of a cultural landscape. Melina Mercury was a, uh, a Greek politician. Prior to that was, a, was an actor and uh, she left a, a legacy uh, to award this make this award every two years it was a very proud moment uh, for myself to be there and accept the award and give a speech but more importantly I think uh, it's definitely a recognition of what our Gunditch now you were a project manager weren't you that's right yes yeah I worked on the world heritage nomination for for uh, about seven or eight years okay now Dennis tell me about your country what's it look like Oh, well, the, the Budge Bim is a lava flow. Budge Bim erupted around about 37,000 years ago. Um, we believe uh, that the, uh, the current shape and form of the wetlands of the country, the, the stone, uh, was sort of settled about 8,000 years ago. So a lot of uh, stony rise country. Um, it's, it's a rugged piece of country. It's, it's hard work uh, uh, getting around. Oh, it is for me, uh, being a bit uh, less mobile, but... Um, it's a uh, it's it's tough country. The actual site was created six thousand six hundred years ago, so it's older than the pyramids. That's right. Well, I uh, take people around, and and 
Essentially, look, I always tell them that the country tells the story. Uh, just point out where things are and uh, you really need to be there to understand the, the scale and the complexity of what is an aquaculture system that was engineered. As well, you say, can, can you briefly describe the way the people use stones to build elaborate series of channels and, uh, and pools to harvest eels? Yes, well, uh, around uh, Tayrak or Lake Conda, um, there are about 80 individual components of the aquaculture system, so channels, weirs, etc., uh, and uh, they they operated at, at various water level heights. So if one, one uh, system got flooded out, another system would come into play. It, it was, and it's been recognised by Engineers Australia as, a, as a, an engineering landmark. We're looking at clearly one of the oldest uh, aquaculture sites in the world. But I remember being as awed, as astonished by the uh, the sites of the stone dwellings. Yes, that's correct. On, on one of our properties, we have 146 registered uh, stone house sites. They're essentially uh, stone foundations um, and... Uh, yeah, we, we had... But they're still there, aren't they? they? Absolutely in they, pristine they, condition. They're still there and uh, and again, we, we talk about having a, a village out there around the edge of, uh, of Tayrak. Now, Paddy, it must be so heartening to uh, see this kind of recognition. Take us back to the early days of the campaign for Indigenous protected areas. A big part of the work was done by the uh, Northern Land Council, where you worked. Yeah, back in the day, I was I went up to the Northern Territory in the 90s. At that time, the Northern Land Council um, and others, but the principally there, had been working on their, what they call, caring for country unit and really developing um, a ranger-like role over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years in a small way through lots of little bits of funding. And so that was really growing at the time. Um, the federal government then, through where Dennis was working at the time, actually at the same time was developing the whole concept of Indigenous protected areas. And so it started to pick up this concept of if you supported traditional owners on country with proper funding and proper arrangements, there was a big motivation to manage that country. Now, Paddy, as I recall, the idea for the Indigenous Rangers came out of the, uh, well, the somewhat problematic work for the Dole program. There were various programs through the 80s and um, including, there, there was one tailored program uh, from the federal government, but yeah, at the time, the Community Development Employment Program back in the 90s was a bit more flexible and groups were doing different things. One of the things they were doing was rangers, probably not fully funded, but certainly that gave a little bit of seed funding for groups to start to grow up in the northern areas in particular. In 1997, the Racial Discrimination Commission or Commissioner, uh, Zeta Antonius, uh, handed down a report into the scheme which said it did not constitute racial discrimination because overall the scheme would uh, benefit both Indigenous people and uh, be adapted to their needs. Yeah, in those early days, I think people were, you know, both white and black, um, were using what they could, what tools they could, what funding they could to pull together an active management presence on country. So I don't think there's ever been a perfect setup, but they were certainly making do with what they could. And that was the foundations really of what we see today. So the Northern Land Council established a caring for country unit to oversee the approach for um, 
Indigenous land and uh, and sea management. And sea management. And certainly they weren't the only ones, but that was quite prominent at the time and it wasn't long after that the uh, Croker Island Sea case, uh, case came in, found native title in the sea. So people are building their legal rights, but at the same time they're investing in their own organisations to get the capacity to support people working on country. Back to you, Dennis. You were also involved in those early discussions in the dying days of the Keating government, but we have to admit it uh, wasn't actually until the coalition was elected that the first Indigenous protected area was declared. That's right. Uh, it was an interesting transition from uh, from, from from one government to another um, and uh, we had to... I suppose as public servants justify ourselves and justify the program, which was a pilot program that was funded by uh, the Keating government, uh, we had to justify why it was successful and why it should continue with the uh, with the with the change of government. It was all dependent on the, the sale of the uh, phone boxes. They had to sell Telstra uh, to establish the uh, National Natural Heritage Trust. Of course, the uh, Minister of the Environment then was uh, Robert Hill, who wasn't a bad bloke. No, he, he was very good. He he actually made us he he asked some some tough questions of us and uh, made us think a bit more uh, about uh, how this, this program, how this Indigenous Protected Area program was going to, to roll out uh, and certainly helped, uh, and, and he pushed it. He supported it uh, through through uh, the government, yeah. Now, in 1987, the community of Nepabana in the uh, northern Flinders Ranges had acquired more than 58,000 hectares. Why was this important? Well, uh, Nantawarrina, the Nantawarrina IPA was the first uh, declared in in, uh, in Australia uh, 25 years ago. Um, it was really important, I think, from a personal point of view. I seen the change in about 15 to 18 months. I went out there uh, as, as they were starting to talk about an IPA on, on the property and uh, there was goats, there was donkeys, there was sheep all over the place. So just getting rid of those um, uh, rabbits were also a problem, Khaleesi virus coming. So within 15 months, the, the land had actually transformed. The stock were off. There was some control works on, on feral animals and also weeds. Paddy, uh, how many IPAs are there now? Well, it's all it's changing all the time because the the network is growing. But the there was eighty four IPAs most recently, and there'd be over twenty in planning at the moment. So that's a that's a huge number, and they're right around Australia, right from Torres Strait to Tasmania and everywhere in between. So they they cover nearly ninety four million hectares of land and sea. That's right. I, I would that's say that's a lot of. It's a hell of a lot of country. Yeah. It's uh, several sizes. I think I can't remember how many Tasmanias fit in there, but I think it's between six and seven Tasmanias or more. Um, and it's a world leading figure. Actually, it's actually underestimated how big and how important this is. And it's all run by uh, traditional owners. Dennis, tell me about the Indigenous Rangers, who of course are on the front line. Yes. Oh, look. Uh, just you know, around the country, they they do some remarkable work. Um, a lot of the time in collaboration with uh, state government agencies and, and uh, NGOs. Um, uh, they're always learning and also sharing their learning and their knowledge as well. And I think that, that's been a really important part of this program that there's been this two, two-way learning uh, with, with both the Western science, if you want to call it that, and traditional knowledge 
and you know the country benefits from it. And so they're there to protect environments from the impacts of well, climate, extreme weather events, invasive species, and uh, Paddy, they're also addressing biosecurity issues. Yeah, the bio, there's yeah, a lot of biosecurity involvement in the top end across yeah. the top because that's where a lot of um, people are checking for things like, you know, whether it be um, feral pigs getting viruses in from overseas, it could affect agriculture, you know, bird flu, things like that. There'll be a lot of sampling, particularly around the top end where, uh, you know, they're working with the agency, but they're really the front line. They're the eyes and ears out there on the water and the land. Now, as I mentioned, uh, you've made a short film to mark the uh, 25 years of history, and it's also showing young people getting involved in uh, caring for country. Let's have a listen. If an opportunity came for you to do ranger work... Yeah, I'll go for it. Keep our culture and our land protected. Our ancestors, they looked after it for us to keep it going for our next and then next generation. Yeah, that's solid, Pretty important. I'm sitting in the studio talking to a couple of good blokes, Patrick O'Leary and Dennis Rose from Country Needs People. Dennis, it must make you feel bloody good to hear that. Most definitely so. Look, I think uh, I see it uh, down home with our, with our rangers, uh, the growth, the development that they have over the years. Uh, we, we turn over staff a bit. They go on to better and bigger things. Um, we encourage But that's them. good, isn't it? Oh, absolutely so, yes. Yes, it certainly is. And uh, we, we're extremely proud of those social benefits that the Indigenous Ranger Program brings along as well as the environmental and cultural benefits. And uh, it's not just caring for country, it's caring for people. Absolutely, yes. Okay, women are getting involved Yes, although uh, down down home uh, we certainly do notice and have noticed over the years uh, uh, not as good a participation of, of women as, as we'd like within their range of program, but we're addressing that and, uh, um, as I said, it's it's tough country to work on. Let's, let's now listen to another grab and this concerns cultural burning. Yeah, I'm really privileged to be the first Tiwi woman to be a land ranger. I'll be navigating today in the helicopter, doing a fire burning, aerial burning, on the eastern side of Melville Island, the Tiwi Islands. So there's two ways that we do burning on country. It's ground burning. The second one is aerial burning with the chopper. It's part of us, you know, because we've been burning for like thousands and thousands of years, so there's nothing new to us. Patrick, uh, cultural burning, a big part of what you do. What are the other challenges on the land? Well, that's right. You know, managing fire, it's so different right from the top end to the desert to east coast. It's all different. It has to be done in context. And as you heard there, you know, it might be from a chopper or it might be, you know, in a different mode. But I have to say feral animals and weeds are a massive impact on the country and... Well, know, particularly cats and camels. Cats and camels are huge. Um, buffalo, water buffalo in Arnhem Land and the Northern Territory, you wouldn't believe how many wild donkeys and goats are out there. All of that needs management and control and it has to be done year in, year out. And, of course, there's huge problems with invasive weeds up there, aren't there? 
Yeah, gamba grass in particular and buffalo grass in Alice Springs. Gamba grass around Darwin, though, is a really big threat, not only to our biodiversity, although I have to say it's a big one, and that, of course, cascades through to cultural medicines and bush plants, but actually human life. The Litchfield National Park up there now is under real threat. Do you think that uh, cultural burning can be adapted or cope with climate change? Look, I think every... Every person who's a land manager, including traditional owners, are grappling with the best way to manage the changing climate. It's definitely the case that fire management has to be very sensitive to that wherever um, it is. But certainly there's a role and there's a place for a well-equipped, good ranger team to apply burning in the landscape. And, of course, let us remember that uh, First Nations people have been around a hell of a long time and they've seen quite a lot of climate changes over that vast stretch. We were talking about this just the other day. If you go to Arnhem Land, um, people will tell you about where they used to walk around out there, northeast Arnhem. That's where I first... Is that right? Oh, yeah. They say they know there's sacred sites out in the sea. They can take you to them. And a friend of mine went out uh, with the GPS. Every single time they stopped within five metres of the same place and he couldn't tell how the traditional owners knew. It was just out in the sea. Isn't that marvellous? Incredible. You're also, of course, looking after cultural artefacts, aren't you? Yes, yeah, certainly. We're, uh, we've been working with uh, the, the Melbourne Museum, for example, to repatriate uh, our possum skin cloak, which had been in the museum for more than 100 years. Some of our old uh, eel baskets uh, have also been repatriated back home as well. So um, we also run a program called Yarns on Farms where we talk with local farmers <laughs> and uh, they also hand in uh, a lot of uh, artefacts, stone tools, etc. I remember years ago when we started getting interested in uh, in the interactions of First Nations people around the world, that very often Canada was leading us and then we'd lead Canada. I mention this because that's how you two met, isn't it? Well, uh, we, we have had a lot to do with Canada over the years uh, and fantastic people over there. No, we actually did meet in northeast Arnhem back in the 90s um, when Dennis was working for the federal government, but we've subsequently been to Canada Dennis and I both separately and together and work quite closely with First Nations there who are doing a great job in building up what they call guardians, same, same as rangers, uh, but a, very, a lot of similarities between Canada and here, I'd say, except uh, temperature-wise a bit colder. Dennis, this has been a year of bitter disappointments uh, for many Aboriginal people in terms of the voice referendum. A big part of that campaign was a strange rumour that somehow the voice was a UN plot to steal our land. Uh, Dennis, you've just received your UNESCO award. Did you hear these rumours? Yes, I did. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, we, we uh, as Gunditjmara traditional owners, have always made sure that we maintain control of, of country. We have our plans of management that we develop. Uh, we have our uh, World Heritage Management plans, uh, we develop it. Certainly in uh, our case, uh, it's not, not seen as a land grab or control over land. And, Paddy, you've also been had to deal with uh, building trust with Aboriginal people that the IPA program isn't a, uh, a government land grab. Well, that's right. You know, Dennis, back in the early days, I think a lot of investment was put into those frank discussions about, you know, what does it mean in terms of control of land? Do we retain control of our land and those things? I'm talking to Patrick O'Leary, CEO and founding director of Country Needs People, and to Dennis Rose, a traditional owner and the chair of Country Needs People. Paddy, 
you and Dennis run this fine organisation that started out as a campaign for rangers, but it's much more than that now, isn't it? Yeah, it is really. We've been able to build a great network. We've got about, um, I would say, about 47 partner groups in our network all around the country. They're all autonomous. They run their own show. We're not, you know, we don't tell them what to do. And there's probably another 20 or 30 groups that we work with and help everywhere from Sydney to literally to the bush. They can call on you for help, but you don't impose yourselves. Oh, no, you can't. You've got to, you've got to take the principle that traditional owners have to decide the key decisions for all their work. We work alongside, we support and we work with, um, uh, but it's about mutual collaboration, really. It started off with a uh, coalition of supporters. The idea to was to address both land care issues plus Indigenous underemployment. That's right. I mean, if you hear politicians stand up every day and say, on the one hand, they care about the environment, on the other hand, they care about jobs and Indigenous employment, well, there's a simple thing they can do, and that is fund programs like this that work. And so there was so much investment by traditional owners in this, it was time to get behind that and lend a bit of additional support. Dennis, you must be astonished how well it's gone. Yes, I certainly am, Philip. I think that uh, I'm extremely proud looking back and, and looking at today's uh, number of IPAs and, 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 and how they're managed. It's a, it's a great feeling um, to be involved at the start. I think one thing that people need to keep in mind is that Indigenous landowners are contributing their land for Australia's biodiversity and cultural values. Going back to The Voice, first to you, Paddy, how did you respond to the outcome? Well, I think like a lot of people who we were working with, um, it wasn't a great period. There was, you know, six or nine months there where people were really feeling that pressure and, um, you know, on the night, I think one of our board members, Bimey Williamson, wrote a really good piece actually about saying, well, look, you know, this feels like a blow. Even if you anticipated this was coming, it feels like a blow. But we must remember there's a whole lot of positive things going on out there and we have to get behind. Dennis? I've uh, never been as angry in my life as that Saturday uh, evening. I was uh, absolutely... Uh, I, I was I was just so angry. That's exactly how Patrice and I felt sitting up there at the farm and in total disbelief. OK, but... Uh, you know, there's some good news now because people, I think, uh, realise that they probably made a big mistake. I think there's buyer's regret. Yes, I think I've said that uh, leading up to the uh, to the referendum that, you know, Australia, you know, could see the polls where they were. I said Australia will wake up Sunday morning and probably kick themselves a little bit that they've missed a great opportunity to, to do something positive uh, for us mob. When the Labor Party was elected, it committed to $10 million to double the Indigenous Ranger numbers by 2030. Are they delivering on the promise? They are. Actually, it's a lot more than that. They um, they committed to two things, which were two of our major asks, is to double Indigenous Rangers between now and 2030, and that is starting to roll out. That's um, well over half a billion dollars. And to increase and grow the Indigenous Protected Area Network, they've certainly upped it by at least $10 million per annum, um, and there's a lot of demand for it to grow further. They've just committed $235 million for the next five years. So there's some substantial money going in there, but this is a really big estate. This is the biggest protected area estate 
in Australia. Is there any bipartisan support for this? Look, we, we worked really hard for several years um, to make sure that this was a non-partisan campaign and really finally uh, Ken White did come through for the po- for the coalition. He's committed the coalition to doubling Rangers, put money in the budget to match Labor. There's now bipartisan support. I have to say it doesn't seem much money. It seems, you know, crumbs from the rich man's table. Well, in terms of the overall, we'd say no, I wouldn't agree. There's a substantial commitment from the federal government there in the order of uh, 700 million over the next several years. Now, there there can be more invested without a doubt. I think what's important is that the money is delivered and supported really well to give groups the chance to succeed. Okay, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to have you and thanks for actually coming into the studio. I don't... Uh get too many live guests these days in the post-COVID. Well, it's not post-COVID anymore, is it? COVID's back again. I've been talking to uh, Patrick O'Leary, CEO and founding director of uh, Country Needs People, and to Dennis Rose, the chair of Country Needs People. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.